Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Well, hello, outliers, penheads, and bulls, and welcome back to the China Shop. Last time on the optional experience, we discussed some different option strategies and structures with Eric giving us other options to research that required less time commitments. Today, we actually have some case studies and some open Q&A plan, right? You narrated beautifully. Well done. Perfect. If you haven't seen those previous episodes, we highly recommend you check those out first. Those links will be in the episode description. And if you are following along, please feel free to message any of us. If you have any questions, comments, ideas, all our contact info is in the episode description. Well, how's everybody been since we last chatted? Kind of a short turnaround week this one. Mm. I think it's only been about a week since we last talked. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's been good on on my side, chilling. We we had a little bit of a tropical storm this past weekend, which really didn't <laughs> live up to expectations. Yeah, man, it, it was pretty lame. I was expecting to see at least a little bit of mayhem, but was let down. Maybe Mother Nature will show up next time. You're in San Diego, right? Correct. Did you get the quake? How bad was the actual earthquake? Didn't know we had one until right, somebody so at the thought. gym told me that they heard about one. So yeah. that's about how bad it was. All right. And then the hurricane itself. Was, <laughs> I was just surprised to see a hurricane in, on the West Coast. When was the last time that's ever happened? I think it's 80 years since Damn. we've had one before. So that was actually pretty. That's kind of why I was hoping that it was going to be, you know, something pretty spectacular. Something, right. Yeah. All your friends I, were there. Yeah. Well, I remember seeing when I was going through um, the basic school for Marine officers, there's like this giant class you, you know, take about like different duty stations and whatnot. Long story short, typhoons in Japan were a big thing. And one of the things they're saying is like, don't do these things. And there was a dude with a poncho liner tied to his wrists and his ankles, like jumping up and getting carried away. I was <laughs> hoping, awesome. I was, I was really hoping to try that. And I think the 40 <laughs> mile an hour gusts just wouldn't, they weren't going to do it. Do you ever, uh, you ever be on a submarine when you're in I the have. military? On, on a nuclear one. Yeah. Did you do angles and dangles or like yes. when you do those yeah. 20 degree diets? Did you happen yeah. to manage to get a hold of one of the mess trays? And slide down no. the reactor tunnel. No, they didn't. <laughs> that's fun. That wasn't a thing for me. No, they won't let you do that in, these days. Yeah, I think I was in like the that main room, like the con tower, whatever the fuck it's. Oh, okay. Like where the um, like where, where the, the periscope, periscope is and all, and all the, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was always hiding in the back. They stuck me in engineering and didn't let me out. Honestly, with a face like that, I don't blame them. That's uh, me exactly either. Where I put you to. <laughs> that's why I've been hesitant to do video. <laughs> mm. 
Uh, what's going on with you, Penny? Anything? Anything new? Hmm. I I'm gonna promote my new podcast once again. Do it. It's called Move Me Brightly. You can find it anywhere you podcast. And we have a very exciting episode coming up. It is about a man who was charged with murder, found guilty, spent 25 years in prison, and then was exonerated due to a Brady violation. And while he was in prison, he recorded a rap album that, and he did it like on a stolen cell phone. And he like sent it to a producer and now he got out in March and he is working on that album and dropping a new album. And it's a great episode just to hear the, the idea of the episode is how being creative and making an album got him through 25 years of being locked up for something that he didn't do. So his name is Leon Benson. It's coming out soon. I really think you should listen to it if you're interested. I uh, will make sure that link is in the episode description. That sounds a lot like the Rick Ross story. And I just listened to him on, I think it was Jordan Harbinger's podcast. And that was a fascinating, the real Rick Ross, not the imposter. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> but all right, should we, uh, should we move on and uh, actually dive into today's discussion then? A uh, quick question on the real Rick Ross versus the imposter. I don't know. The, I know the rapper. Is that, which one is he? The rapper is the imposter. The real oh, Rick man. Ross, he stole man. Rick Ross's identity. And oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's an insane story. It really is uh, definitely worth checking out if you got free time, an hour to kill. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. To get us kicked off, we're starting with our homework from the last session, which was on the 16th. And one of the things we talked about was doing um, just a little bit more analysis on kind of the primary options trading strategy that we think we want to develop. So last time we spent a bit of time running through what Blaine has been working on and whatnot. So Kyle, I thought that we would give you a little bit more of the spotlight this run through. And if you have a option strategy that you want to discuss, my goal here is essentially to serve a similar role to what my mentor used to do with me. So I used to have a written trading plan and I would present what uh, what my ideas were to him. Mm -hmm. And he, he wasn't there for anything other than asking me probing questions that I either had answers to or I know I needed to find answers to. And it kind of put me through the right paces to then understand the concepts of developing a strategy and then kind of what the important details are. So that's my goal with kind of this session. And it'll probably be, you know, five, 10 minutes of the segment. And then we'll run over to kind of like the open Q&A. And then I have some case studies that if we have time, we can take a look at. But we'll start with your strategy. You're talking about strategies or structures? Either or. The way okay. I view it is um, not to get pedantic, but in, you know, the people on Reddit are quick to do that exact thing. But the <laughs> idea of, for those that don't know, the idea of the difference between strategy and a structure colloquially is when we're talking about structures, it's just a combination of options, right? So like a covered call is a structure, a short put is a structure, a short strangle, so on and so forth. The strategy component, quote unquote, is the way that you deploy that structure. So the way that somebody builds their deployment of a covered call, that is a strategy built around the structure of a covered call. But you can say whatever the fuck you want to say. None of it matters. It literally makes zero difference. So call them whatever makes you happy. All right. Well, um, 
As far as the strategies go, I've been diving a lot into Wyckoff lately, and I don't remember, did we discuss this in the last one, the Triple M trade that I put on? I think we looked at that, didn't we? I think, yes. I don't know. If we, okay, cool. I don't remember if we did it on or off air, but. I can't remember it if we like did yes. it on air or not. Um, but basically, the premise of that is looking for price to get to key points on the volume profile and then deploying straddles to because basically, like if you get to an edge or a, of a major distribution, I expect it to either return back to the mean or if it's going to uh, escape from that, right. then it's going to move to the next distribution. So looking for those key points when uh, the underlying is at like a key decision point and then trying to take a straddle off of that, trying to be neutral on the deltas and take advantage of just the fact that I know that IV or I think that IV should increase as price moves away from like the safety of its distribution like that um, was kind of the idea and i was going back and forth between trying to do this at ledges or doing it at like the vpoc and then maybe trying to look for it to go to the extremes of of that distribution i think at least at face value i think you're crossing two different things okay so it yeah so if you're looking for some sort of short-term price mean reversion to me that would be one strategy and then if you're trading something like short straddles, typically we really want to focus mostly on IV HV relationships. Mm -hmm. So the way that you're describing it, it sounds more of a directional hypothesis, but maybe you can explain the way that you would run it a little bit more and then we can dial it in. But uh... in general, my goal when trading a straddle ideally is the the price doesn't go anywhere it literally stays exactly where it is and time decays and iv just remains overstated compared to hv that's the ideal scenario so gotcha, gotcha. that's that's the way i would think about those well let's look at i think ford was one of the ones that i took in that that idea okay so let me let me pull that up so i can see the actual volume profile on it I love trading Ford, or I used to in my oh, yeah? <laughs> in my penny stock days. I traded Ford a lot. Great. It's funny. I I feel like Ford is like the gift that keeps on giving because I remember when I first started trading back in 2007. This was one of the products that I could afford then too. So I feel like a lot of smaller traders spend a bit of time in Ford. It's almost like you know part of your path. I think just about every options trader has spent time in Ford for that exact reason. <laughs> yeah, it's and it moves well. It's like it's just a good, good little vehicle. Yeah. So, ooh, I made a little vehicle. Yeah, a no, pun. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I like the uh, so, way that you framed that. Was I made a little? And I made. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I was looking at Ford, I had mapped off a distribution between like fourteen half down to uh, about eleven dollars. Yeah. Uh, and at the time I put that trade on, it was trading right in the middle of that distribution, right around $12 uh, and 80 cents to $13, somewhere around there. So my mm -hmm. thought was if I go long a straddle, I should be neutral on the deltas. And because it's in the middle of the distribution, my thought was that IV should be lower because it's at its home. It's where it wants to be. And as it moves to explore the edges of that distribution, IV should increase. Or That was my thesis. Hmm. Uh... I can it see sounds what like you're there's doing. a lot to yeah, exactly. pick apart yeah, on that. That's, that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the if I'm thinking about buying a straddle, mm -hmm. my goal is for explosive movement one way or the other. So I like that you're tying this idea of the distribution and finding a way to play with 
something moving within that distribution, like, I think that's okay. I think the way that I would consider the trade in its entirety, though, is unless you have an opinion on implied volatility value compared to recent realized volatility value, mm-hmm. you would probably be better off trading that thesis with a directional approach as compared to a straddle. So the main thing I'm highlighting is that if I'm gonna trade a longer short straddle, the primary input is gonna be volatility. The secondary input would be some sort of price expectation, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, and the reason for that is like, when you put it on, were you directionally neutral or yep. did you, okay. And your hypothesis was it would simply move somewhere around 13 up to 14 and a half or a quarter and then down to 11, like somewhere within that. My expectation was that it would probably go lower because I think it had just failed the upper end of that distribution. Plus, we've been seeing a lot of uh, news headlines that were showing that like inventory was building up. Dealers are having a hard time getting rid of inventory. Uh, Things that made me think bearish in the long term for Ford. When did you put the trade on? What day? Uh, this one went on on the 31st of July and I actually closed it out as soon as it hit less than 30 days to expiration. Uh, so I think that was, um, maybe last week. So what I'm doing is I'm using on demand for us to go back in time together Mm -hmm. and we're going to take a quick look at what the trade looked like then. And then we can just fast forward real fast to then explore how it, how it played out. Because I agree with you. Like if I were to trade this product here, uh, especially this movement, like I would be bearish just based mm-hmm. on the way that this chart is moving. Yeah. So what I did was, is I grabbed onto, it was just loading. It takes a second because uh, it's like, yeah, it's pretty slow for it to go back in time, but it's actually kind of cool. So here we are transported back in time. It is now 31 July. And this is what you were looking at. So in this instance, like you, Kyle, I definitely agree with kind of a, a general bearish assumption. Mm-hmm. Or there's a couple of things that I see near term. The first one is, Implied volatility at this point was actually priced pretty damn close to realized volatility. So that tells me in terms of a volatility edge, there's not a giant one here. Not to say that you still couldn't make money, and you probably did because you did get a bit of a continuation in the move. But if Mm -hmm. you compare what you make in this scenario compared to just either buying a put or selling a call, you can make more money in that scenario if you have that directional assumption and that's what you're trying to express against. But okay, let's take a look. So what expiration did you use? Uh, 9.15 and it was the $13 strikes. The 15s? Uh, 13. Oh, I was going to say that is a super weird. <laughs> yeah, that okay, would have cool. been very weird. So here we can, I wonder if this will let us look at a risk profile. Perfect. So the reason why I'm just putting it in the risk profile is so that we can compare a few things. So we have that choice. Then we have kind of my preferred bearish choice, which we'll throw in there as well. And we'll just do one of those. And then we'll also take a look at if we had just sold, let's call it like a 30 Delta short call. And we could do one or two of those. Okay. So what I want to do is kind of compare how each of these look over time. So what I'll do is I'll fast forward us then to the end of that week, which is the 4th of August. And we'll see what this looks like. So as it makes its move down and Kyle, just to let me get a peek into the future, what did you end up closing the trade for? 
I closed it out at 137. Um, I don't remember which day it was. What did you get in at? Uh, 109. Yeah, so it was a loss. No, no, because I went long. Oh, my bad. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, my thought was that volatility would expand as it moved away. I see. Yeah, yeah, that that's good. And the thing to kind of remind yourself with that hypothesis is if it had moved up, volatility likely would contract. Oh, good point. Yeah. So yeah, let me write that down. In this scenario, it definitely seemed to have worked out okay. But so, anyways, if we're so there's bearish, no reason. Sorry, there's no reason then to go with the straddle because if it goes up, then I'm going to lose either way. Like the whole idea of taking the straddle is that I didn't know which direction it would move. I thought it would move down, but if it had moved up, I thought I would still be able to profit off of that too. Yeah, probably not because uh, volatility would contract unless okay. unless you got a giant move. If there was right. a big parabolic move very fast, you can still make money here. But yeah, essentially, there were two ways for you to lose money here and one way to make money right. in general. And that's, yeah, exactly. So I think okay. the, the way you, yeah, I think the way that you're thinking about these, the, the products is decent. I think the problem with the current approach is definitely tied to the priorities of the trade, which in my opinion would be volatility versus the directional assumption. Because if you have some sort of directional assumption, then it completely changes the way that I would structure this trade. Because exactly mm -hmm. like you're saying, if you thought it would move one way or the other, that is a fair assumption, but you do run into a bit of a problem point with the way volatility is going to behave over the course of that. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So this, yeah. we, I just fast forward us to nine August. So you put it on, we said the 31st. So I fast forwarded us like a week and a half. I so remember I closed it out the day it went to less than 30 days uh, to expiration. So we should be able to figure it out from that. So it's 15 days in, right? From, yeah, so it would have been 15 days in. So it would have been yeah. essentially another day or two. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So you were saying at this point, this was trading for $1.30, which I think it's just because on demand is being on demand. Um, mm -hmm. It's not showing me what the current price is, but it's showing a, a loss. It doesn't matter. What I, yeah, cause now it's below 13, it's at 12.76. But we can take a look anyways real quick at some of the, the other trades just to get an idea of um, comparatively what they would be trading at and what you would make. And both of these scenarios, essentially you would, you would make more money. Mm -hmm. If you had sold the equivalent exposure in calls, short calls, if you had bought an in the money put, like I typically would, versus the straddle, which again, if this was like a $30 win, we, you know, we could just approximate it. On demand is good, but it's not perfect. I have been exploring the idea of deeper in the money puts. That's what that triple M trade was that we discussed uh, last time. Um, yeah. Trying to get an idea how those move. And I got to say, I like it a lot better than the volatility you get with the out the money options, the, the way that those retain their value, even when it starts to move against you a little bit is much easier to sit through than I think some of those other YOLO type plays that people like to do. Definitely. And I think the other thing to consider is just, it's a lot of traders are just cheap and mm -hmm. they don't actually realize that they're significantly decreasing the capacity for them to make money if they're buying out of the money calls or puts mm -hmm. like if you're going out of the money it doesn't mean you can't make money you can but it's much more difficult than if you go in the money gotcha yeah 
Cool. So then as far as the strategy in general, I would encourage you to kind of consider two things. The first thing I would consider is if we have some sort of directional assumption, a straddle probably wouldn't be the way that I would go if the directional assumption is bullish or bearish, right? Like one or the other. Mm -hmm. If you have a clear view on volatility and assumption on volatility, then I think the straddle makes a lot more sense. But the reason why that trade made money is because you saw one, a bit of directional movement because it continued down and mm -hmm. two, because it went down, implied volatility expanded a bit, which you can see in kind of this, uh, this bright yellow line, that's short-term implied volatility, it ticked up a bit during yep. that down move. So you had a couple things that came together that let you essentially eke out a profit. Yep. Yeah, it wasn't nearly what I was hoping to get out of it, but uh, exactly. yep. <laughs> it, it still worked out. I was happy for one of the first trades to be like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a good, it was a good learning point too, like just to, to make sure that we understand the impact of if you had a bullish move, what that would do to volatility as well. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think I need to go back through and find one and maybe, can you show us how you use that, uh, the back testing there? How do you use the look back on thinkorswim? For what purpose? Just like if I wanted to, to do what you did, like put a trade on and analyze it like that, like mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you use it to back test? I've always been afraid to click a button because it looks very similar like the order confirmation tickets whenever I go to the paper trade one. <laughs> Where I'm always afraid that I'm going to be accidentally placing a trade when I'm trying to analyze something. Yeah, so the, there's a few ways to prevent that. The first thing is the entire screen will be surrounded by this like dark brown or brown line or whatever fucking color this line is. Oh, and then in the okay. top left, it'll always say these are simulated values again in brown. So yeah, it'll it'll change some of those colors so that you know when you're in here versus somewhere else. But Essentially, to, to backtest in here, if we have a specific, you know, theme that we're trying to play, let's say we want to trade things when they fall below their 50 day moving average and we want to take them to the short side. And the only reason why I'm doing that is because I can see that that happened here right. and we can use it as an example. So here it happened on the 28th. So I would go back to the 28th. And if you have specific protocols that you want to test, this is a great time to test those specific protocols. If you want to test a variance of protocols, this is also a good time to do it, but they're two different things. Mm -hmm. So again, let's say you want to see what makes more money if I buy an in the money option that is 21 days out. So let's do, let's say that I buy an in the money option. I'm going to buy this 94 Delta long put that's 21 days out. So I'm going to right click it, hit analyze trade, and then I'm going to keep it sending me to the risk profile. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to say, that's kind of my first variation. Then I want to try going, let's say this 175 DTE. And I'm going to look for like that same 94 Delta. Again, because it's paper trading, there's shortfalls. Notice how the deltas are all wonky. Yeah. And this can happen anyways. If you go super far in the money, the deltas can do this, but it won't be that bad. But anyways, I'm going to approximate that probably this 19 and 35 cents or this 20 would be about a 94 delta. I would prefer this one if it wasn't a weird strike. So I'm going to go hell? with the 20. Yeah, just to compare it. So then I'm going to look at the essentially this the value to get into both of these trades. So this one is essentially three times the price. Mm -hmm. Right. So the one that's 
super far out in time is trading for 690. The one that's closer is $1.86. So what I'm doing is three to one. So I'm just keeping them the same size. What I want to mm -hmm. do is give us literally an apples to apples comparison. That's what I'm going for here. Yep. So now if I fast forward us again to let's say the 9th of August, because we know that the move has happened. That's one of the cool parts about on demand is if you want to test a bearish strategy, one, you can find a time historically where that bearish thing happened and you can test it. Then you can also specifically look for times when it doesn't happen and you can see which one hurts less yeah that kind of thing it allows you to test both sides of the, the of the strategy and the way that i think about back testing typically is i run all of my stuff through big information processors first like actually i i typically back test in uh python or sql like really whatever you want if you have your own tables built but once you run it through like a big aggregator like that you can then come in here more with the scalpel and you can go to something at a random point in time if you want to test something, how you would do it without knowing what's going to happen. Or you can find specific scenarios to get a better idea of how it behaves in those specific scenarios. Anyways, I'll fast forward us now to 9 August and then we can take a look. So we can say once this finishes uh, pre-buffering, um, we'll be able to see how both of these behave, which you can kind of already see here. So the three lot of the 15 puts is up uh, 111 bucks, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then we can look at this further out in time one, which is up only $32. So now we mm -hmm. know definitively which one made more money. And we kind of know this to be true, right? There's no shocker here. Now, again, you then have to make the value proposition. If we look at another scenario, maybe here, where you trade that same days to expiration and in that first scenario, that 20 DTE, you didn't get your move in 20 DTE. So right. that would have lost. And that other one actually would have paid out if you waited a little bit longer to hear. So that's mm -hmm. exactly how I use it. This is just to test a, you know, super simple long put hypothesis, but you could do this with every strategy that you choose to run. It's interesting that the more time you buy, the less profit you see, but is that because of the Delta expansion you were talking about as it gets closer? Or as the delta it's, starts to expand, it makes the value increase faster? Uh, that's part of it. But the other thing is here, again, we have a three lot compared to a one lot because right. I normalized price. If I did this one at a three lot, it's up $92. So it's up very similar mm -hmm. to the other scenario. So the variance that you see between these is just because of the deltas, essentially. But to your point, the shorter term option, if you get your move, typically will pay you more in that time frame. Mm -hmm. typically unless you're at a one delta for both if you're at a one delta for both then it's essentially same same yeah yeah okay i think we spent enough time on me <laughs> yeah that's awesome um so then i imagine we can pivot over to the q a because i think um just being kind of cautious of time and i know blaine that um you are still working on yours so we can kind of skip over that part unless there's any specific details on yours that you're working on that you want to talk about otherwise we can just jump into the q a nope i'm good if i if i have something i'll let you know Ooh, sweet all right yeah so now i would love to pivot just to kind of a, an open dialogue so far about what you guys have been looking at what stuff has made sense what stuff hasn't made sense and then I would love to be able to dive into, you know, further detail on some of those topics. And then if we need anything to kind of jog our minds, I do have a couple of case studies that we can mix in 
that I think will serve for good dialogue. So we can either start with some questions or we can start with one of the case studies, your guys's call. Blaine, you want to, you got something you want to ask first? I have a couple questions loaded up here. I can, I mean, you're so prepared with questions. Let's hear your questions. Okay. Well, I mean, some of these might be kind of silly, but, um, there was a couple things that we discussed at the end of the last episode that didn't make the recording. I thought it'd be good just to kind of have those quickly so we can touch on them. So everybody gets to hear the information that I got to hear. Sure. Uh, one of them was about Ivy. Um, I think, uh, we realized, we figured out that I was actually confusing Vega with Ivy, but the mm. right place to find Ivy is actually on the stock chart. Look at the implied volatility. Uh, and then you compare it to historical there. Yep. It could be on the stock chart or you can do it. Uh, let's go out of on demand here real quick. Um, and you can also do it here. So you can come down to um, the product depth uh, and you can see you can see all sorts of stuff. So we can right now I have it set to open interest, but you can look at implied volatility here. Don't let these things like freak you out. Everybody, when I first show them, these are they're like, oh, what the fuck is this? Um, it's literally just the individual implied volatility for different experts for both mm -hmm. the calls and puts. Yeah, don't let that uh, stress you out. That's one way you can do it. You can see the implied volatility for each expiration here. And this is actually a very telling place to see implied volatility. Hmm. So for example, if we see short-term implied volatility is massively higher, or if we see one of these midterm expirations have massively higher volatility than the others, that tells us something's going on. The market knows something is going on there. And hmm. a good example of this actually could be if we look at some earnings for next week, for example, which I see one in CRM next Wednesday. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, S-P-U-L-L-E-N at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So I actually have an earnings me. question. I would, before it's over, I would love to talk about some kind of strategy that you could have done with the NVIDIA earnings today. Right, I'm right. super interested in that. Yeah, right now I'm actually long calls in NVIDIA. And well, good for that's, you. That's amazing. Yeah, that, that, that's not my go-to, to be honest. That's like a very stark departure from what I typically do for earnings plays. Typically for earnings plays for options traders, we trade them in the aggregate, meaning we put a lot on 
And kind of for the more sophisticated, which I obviously don't identify with, that's why I put it in fucking air quotes, um, we're trading volatility. So I'm not necessarily worried about if something goes up or down. I'm worried about the very well-documented phenomenon that is around earnings, where I know definitively, on average, two weeks out, volatility will start to expand leading into the release. And then I know after the release, on average, volatility will contract quickly. And the reason for that is there's a lot of new information that at first was unknown, right? So there's a high expectation that as that information is diffused, stuff's going to move. And then once it's known and it makes its move, volatility. So in general, I'm trading things like short straddles or iron flies. It's kind of a iron flies, I think, are safer for smaller accounts, especially newer traders. And I put it in air quotes because it protects against tail risk, but it serves as drag on your returns. But if you're new to earnings, it's kind of a, a safer way to prevent any sort of large outsized movement against you. And Is that then, like but, an iron condor, but more like a butterfly where it has like a directional bias? It's essentially a short straddle where you buy the wings. Okay. So yeah, so it's like a, it's a way to trade the short straddle as the primary structure, which is attempting to capture the variance between implied and realized volatility. But if, and if I wasn't, prime time example, if I wasn't directionally invested in NVIDIA, meaning I had a directional assumption, I thought it was going to go up just because of all the fucking hype, to be honest, it's a very basic thesis, but I just anticipated them um talking about ai and everybody loving it i didn't expect them to do this good they, they and that was just pure luck but the main point is if i didn't have that hypothesis and i wanted to trade this earnings instead of just trading a short straddle i absolutely would have traded an iron fly and it's because a lot of these tech stocks can get these crazy moves after earnings and I've learned to try and hedge at least partially against those. Now, the true volatility traders will say that that's stupid, that the past isn't predictive of the future releases, and you just do it in the aggregate, and they're not wrong. But colloquially, I have a really kind of comprehensive list of all of the things that I trade earnings in, and the stuff that draws down my account the most per those kinds of moves are tech stocks and biotech. Hmm. So colloquially, as long as that remains the case, I'm going to continue doing that. So yeah, the short answer, Blaine, is I'm typically going to trade volatility. If I'm not trading volatility and you have a directional assumption, I would just use long single options, accepting the fact that volatility is going to work against you. So even though I'm getting a nice move in my favor, if this move's not big enough through earnings, as volatility drops like a rock, I'm going to get hurt. So I typically go far in the money to decrease how much volatility I'm exposing myself to via extrinsic value, and I'm moving more dollar for dollar. You can hold a straddle through earnings if you think it's going to move explosively one way or the other, but you run into the same problem. If you don't get a big enough directional move to overcome the volatility contraction, it's a losing trade. So trading earnings, I think in general for options traders is best done in the aggregate. If you're going in trying to make a bunch of money on any single one of them, that could be real difficult. It could be real, real mm -hmm. difficult. A lot more risk. I, yeah. Can I ask a follow-up question? Of course you can. Okay. Yeah. So 
I know that AMD sort of moves with NVIDIA, right? And if you had this thesis on NVIDIA, would you like AMD, I know is doing AI stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Would you ever have two different stocks that you held the same thesis on because they sort of move in tandem? Or would you only trade like the leading, the leading one or the stronger one? Um, no, I, I think that that's, I think that that's completely fine to do that if you want. Like if, if you want to trade both of them and you kind of accept the risk profile that that causes, I think that that's completely fine. I think I would just size very carefully, right? So if we have, uh, let's say, a $10,000 allocation for this trade, I wouldn't put 10 in both, right? Because now we right. essentially have doubled our risk because they're correlated. If you don't have that kind of assumption, though, and you do, you know, five and five, I think that that's... I used to have this strategy that I did. I did this challenge where I was trying to make $50 a day for X amount of time and then $100 a day and whatever. And I did it for several months. And I was only trading Apple at the time. And I would use Apple and Spy and QQQ as like different benchmarks for that trade. And then like be able to play off each other to be able to make all of those trades. And mm -hmm. the way I developed that thesis was by trading kind of like the weaker one, expecting that it would follow the stronger one. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was an interesting, it was an interesting, yeah. I learned a lot doing that. That's, that's really the, the notion of a pairs trade. That's the whole idea. So like, if we take a look at that exact idea, and if we look at something like Apple, and then if we look at the cues, we can assess um, kind of how strong they are relative to one another. And then the whole idea of these kinds of pairs trades is to trade that exact phenomenon that you're talking about. So we What's can see- What's it called? Pairs? A pairs trade. So P-A-I-R. Uh -huh. And essentially the idea of a pairs trade is you're trading the relationship between two products. So- if we know, for example, and this is a great example, like it, and I can see why you would do it. The five-day correlation between Apple and QQQ is 95%. And that's no shocker, right? Because right. Apple's probably the largest proponent of the Qs. So if for whatever reason, there is a scenario where one is markedly different than the other, you can absolutely find a tradable event there. So for example, you could argue here that Apple was undervalued, right? This looks like a steeper decline to me than what the Qs did over here. So you could say, I'm going to buy Apple because I think it's going to catch up to the Qs and the rest of the tech. I think that's a completely viable approach. A really effective way to do this is when you actually see divergence. Divergence is very powerful with pairs trades. So for example, on this looks like on the 20th of June, it looks like Q's shot up a little bit. And if we go to the 20th of June over here, that didn't really happen in Apple. So in this scenario, you could say, well, my hunch is that they're going to approximate. I'm going to sell Q's by Apple, whether it's the stock itself, whether it's via options. And you're not really trading either one of these directionally at that point. You're trading the relationship and the normalization of the relationship based on that divergence. It's actually a very, very high efficacy trade, to be honest especially for things that maintain really steady correlations like you see here. 
if we look at other stuff, people think like Coca-Cola and Pepsi, FedEx and UPS, like stuff like that. Sometimes those relationships can break. And the issue that you run into with pairs trades, if you get too big, is those relationships, again, can remain different longer than you can remain solvent. So as that diversion just continues to expand, they might eventually converge on one another. But if that's losses expanding, you're like, shit, I have to get out. So it is important to size and just like every single trade to plan, you know, appropriately for it. But what you are onto innately literally is stunning because that's one of the highest efficacy trades you can come across as a pair. Right? That's so exciting to me, mm -hmm. honestly, because I've explained this strategy to probably six different people and all six people were like, my mind is blown. I don't mm -hmm. like, <laughs> like, I don't understand how you do that. But this I'm excited. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be digging into that. Paris trades are great. I, I have a couple videos on them. The reason why I like I probably maintain a book of them, whether it's against the entire portfolio that's beta weighted or something like that. But it literally is one of the best possible ways you can offset risk. The other thing you could do is the inverse. You can find things that are either completely not correlated or inversely correlated. And you can still paired trade those, the extremes, things that are either highly correlated or inversely correlated. But the reason why it's so powerful is because you could put on more risk with less total risk, right? So if I have something that I make money when that goes up, but I lose a little bit money when this other thing goes up, but they, again, you can make money on both of those scenarios while reducing total portfolio risk. That's why portfolio margin is so cool is because it understands those relationships and it lets you trade those um, and it covers the risk for them pretty carefully. Cool. So that's dope. I'm, uh, that yeah, is, I'm really stoked. I'm really that stoked. That. Awesome. And it's, it's really cool that you innately found that. Like that's, that's a, it's a cool thing to come across. Thanks. Yeah, I'm stoked with that. Are you going to look at CRM? Because uh, as a shareholder, I'm excited to see what's coming up here. <laughs> oh, yeah. So back to the, the earnings and volatility thing really quick. So CRM has earnings coming up the 30th. So if I go to the trade tab and I look for wherever the 30th is between, so clearly it's not going to be in this expiration. It will live in this expiration and it will be done by this expiration. Notice the volatility for the one that has earnings compared to the other two. Mm -hmm. Very high. And it's abnormal for us to see volatility that is this near term such a high percentage otherwise. And you have to think of it this way. The stuff that is near term, it has less time to make these big moves. So normally what we expect to see is lower volatility that is slightly ramping as you go out in time, or depending on if something is at an extreme and it's expected to move down, it can invert. But the main point being, when we see this kind of behavior and options, it can be very telling to see this arrangement mm -hmm. of volatility. Eric, uh, one quick question. So we know where the most recent or the nearest coming um, earnings report is going to be, but where is the next one? Like, do you see a spike in the next one too, or does that not start getting priced in until you start uh, approaching that? It's it's a good question. You might be able to start seeing it, but uh, let's kind of test the theory. If it's too far out in time, it's very difficult to price it. And there's mm -hmm. other things that are being baked into the anticipation of that earnings release. So this one was the 30th. The one that we just had before was in the end of May. So what I would do here is go and see like essentially what's on cadence for the next release. 
So this was in eight. This one is in November 30th. So that's probably where the other one is. So it'd be in this expiration. And it doesn't oh. look like it's super priced in yet. Yeah. Because the other thing you can see, as we get mm -hmm. closer, more expirations are going to open. Right. So right now, it's between these two expirations. It's not going to be in this 19 Jan expiration. There will be weeklies that pop up that it will live within, and it's just not there yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That was just a curiosity. Yeah. Totally cool. What other questions you guys got? Lane? I'm thinking. Okay. Let me see what I've got pulled up here. Oh, um, I had another question about IV. Uh, one of the scenarios you had us trying to look into was transitioning volatility. And I was curious if volatility mm -hmm. had similar, uh, like, does it tend to have momentum? Like once it starts moving in one direction, does it tend to want to stay moving in that direction until something acts upon it to make it change? Yeah, it's a great question. So what I'm pulling up right now is a study that I'm going to share with. You. And what volatility does is cluster, full term. Volatility clustering. Yeah. So the way that volatility tends to behave is when there are significant changes in price, we tend to see smaller changes afterwards. So you can see that when volatility moves, when it tends to elevate, it tends to cluster and remain elevated until there's a new change in paradigm, a new period in which it will transition and tend to cluster somewhere. So this is kind of a, a more recent study on it. There is a ton, a ton, a ton of research on clustering in different products. This is another one that I really like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in short, volatility clusters. That's the way to think about it. That's the, okay. the typical behavior of it. Just making a note so I make sure I put these in the episode description in case anybody else wants to look through them. Yeah, for sure. And I'll I'll, I'll save the links to... All right. The last question that I had written out for today was a question about liquidity. Okay. When you're trying to find liquidity in your options, I saw one of the videos where you're looking at, you had, you looked at the bid ask spread and you also looked at open interest. Mm -hmm. um, which one do you think is more important and how does open interest correlate to more liquidity? Because don't they have mm -hmm. to like want to close those positions at some time? Like, are you basically stuck waiting for everybody else to want to get out before you can close it? Or like, how does that work? Yeah. How does that help you? It's a good question. So if we're thinking about liquidity and just like a quick recap on what's so important is being, if you have to fight to get into a trade, if things start not going well, think about how difficult it is to get out at a fair price. Yeah. That's why liquidity is important. So if we're looking at something like the bid-ask spread, that is, to your point, one of the very first things we can do mm -hmm. to assess total liquidity. And there are a lot of secondary and tertiary things. So first trait that you're going to find is near-term expirations are going to have more activity in them. They're inherently going to be more liquid than if you go further out in time. If an option is at the money, it tends to have more action than things that are far in the money or far out of the money. Another typical. If you look at the bid ask spread, that gives you an idea. What I kind of recommend to people while you're getting a few, because somebody might look at this and say, oh shit, you know, 25 cent wide bid ask spread. That's insane. I can't believe that. If you look at it as a percentage of the price and compare them to like products, it gives you a better idea of if something is comparatively liquid or not. Mm -hmm. Because 
if something is trading at $400, it typically is going to have a slightly wider bid-ask spread than something that's trading at $10. So that's just another thing to keep in mind is that it's going to be relative to the price of the underlying. You can also use shares traded as a general proxy. Higher shares traded tends to mean more liquid options. And then another proxy you can use are things that have weeklies. Not every stock has weeklies on it. And mm -hmm. so if there's no demand for weeklies, it's still, that, again, that doesn't mean it's not liquid at all, but it tends to be, if it has weeklies, it tends to be generally more liquid. And on that same vein, if standard expirations tend to have more liquidity than weeklies. So that's just like a random smattering of liquidity. Now, to answer your question on bid-ask spread versus OI, it is not one or the other in my mind. I look at both. Mm -hmm. So if I want to essentially get into CRM, my hypothesis is I would probably get a better fill with something that has higher open interest because there's markets actively being made in there. So there's already somebody pricing those options. Again, that's not to say that I couldn't get a fair market at these 202 and a halves that are that there's seven open interest. But as you look at the overall liquidity of some of these options with lower open interest, it's kind of a stark difference. Mm -hmm. Like for example, the difference between you know these it's not bad at all and there's only 76 open interest so open interest isn't necessarily like the end all be all of where you're going to find liquidity you can still find a fair market but if i'm between example like right here if i'm between this 197 and a half and this 195 i probably would favor the 195 whether i'm buying or selling because there's still 3600 contracts there compared to the 30 I tend to get a better fill there, but it's not again, like make or break end all be all. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. I think you hit most of my questions. I liked that last question. Oh, thank you. That was a last minute addition. <laughs> I have a couple quick questions for you guys. The first one from our friends at Reddit, this person is asking how to calculate an options price based on the price of the underlying security. So essentially they're saying if they buy a call at whatever price, they want to know what that what the price of the underlying has to be for their call to be trading at $1.50. How can we do that? Do you guys know? I mean, that's basically what Delta is, isn't it? Doesn't Delta yeah. tell you and how much the price has to move to... That's that's exactly right. Now, the reason why I think this is topical, because that's the exact right answer, and it's the right way to look at it in terms of theory. In terms of practical application, you essentially have to use some sort of either series of assumptions, or you can use very simply something like this, the risk profile where your broker builds in those assumptions for you. Oh. So if if we were to look at that again, so let's say this person bought these 210 puts and to make it easy because math for Marines is better for me. Um, and we say we bought it at nine. Mm -hmm. What does, you know, CRM have to be trading at in order for me to make 10 on, you know, the, the long puts. And essentially that tells me I would need to make, you know, a hundred dollars or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I can slide this until I see in the bottom left, we're now trading right around a hundred dollars, which is, 20860. The mm -hmm. 
reason why this is a little more accurate is because they also have a volatility assumption. So you can change the volatility assumption that you're using. You can use Black-Scholes binomial or BS if you want. But the BS. point being is, yeah, the, the point in. being is that's she's pricing <laughs> options pretty efficiently, I hear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's essentially the way you can get to this answer. The reason why I think using your broker's platform is probably the most accurate and simplest is because they have those other things baked in. If you do the math on your own, if something goes, again, if you buy a call and it goes to $1.50, it's not just Delta that has changed. Right. The volatility has changed, which has to be fed into the pricing model, stuff like that. So I thought that was an interesting question that they had. Sorry, what's up? Is this available on the actual chart of the option? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you look at the, the chart of the actual option. N not yet. Okay, so let's say we plot this real quick and we do send to quick chart. We go to chart. So this is a chart of the options price. Yeah, I haven't looked at one of these in a little while. And I was just wondering, mm -hmm. like, it would make a lot of sense if there was, if it was on this chart of like oh, what the underlying. I see. So, yeah, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, that's actually a good question. I don't chart it that way, so I don't have an answer for you. But what I do know is that I'm sure you could add it as a label. That I do know. I don't have it because I don't use it. But that, without a doubt, I know you can do. As far as overlaying it here, I imagine you can as well. I just don't know how to do it. You might be able to actually do like a pairs. I wonder if it lets you do that. Yeah, so it is. Well, so it lets you trade the pairs. So yeah, I, I imagine there's different ways for you to, to look at the relationship between the two of them as like a pair. So I imagine you could probably plot them both. The other thing I know that you can do definitively is if you use like a, a multiple grid, right? You can look mm -hmm. at the option on one and then you could look at the stock on the other. So those are kind of like the, you know, ghetto roundabout ways that I know. Um, sure, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I imagine well, looking, there's got to be a solution for it. Looking at a chart seems easier than like calculating in anything in my own head, right? I'm like, yeah. the chart will just tell me what it is. That's yeah. how I would like to know. <laughs> yep. And that, yeah. And I think that that's totally fair. Yeah. Cool. And I have one other quick one, which this one's just in, a, this is like a super important lesson that all options traders need to know. So I talk about it every opportunity that I can. This person was early assigned on a part of their short call spread. So a lot of times, smaller options traders trade vertical spreads because they think it's safer. Yep. There is a risk with this. In this case, this person had 20 short calls as part of a call spread, and they were assigned on 16 of them. And early assignment can happen for a litany of reasons. In this case, it's because their product had a dividend coming up, and the value on the short calls was less than the value of the dividend. So there's an arbitrage opportunity for the holder. They're incentivized to exercise, take the shares through X dividend to get the dividend. That's exactly what happened here. What I remind smaller options traders to remember is that that vertical spread, the short leg can be exercised whenever, literally whenever. It doesn't even have to be for this. Some just completely coked out Wall Street bets trader could just decide, I wanna know what this button does and they could hit exercise now and they get paired with somebody random and it could be you. So the one thing I implore people to remember is that vertical spreads, the short option can always be exercised for a bunch of different reasons. It's far more likely in this exact scenario with the dividend coming up on the short call. However, don't freak out. Typically your broker 
will know that this is part of a spread and they can either exercise for you the long options against it, which you don't even have to do. A lot of times you can literally just trade out of it and it's not a big deal provided that you still have the structure in place. Just reach out to your broker depending on how the broker handles these things. Sometimes the broker will handle it for you. But yeah, I find this to be really pertinent because this happens to options traders a lot and I've seen people lose their freaking minds over it. Yeah, I've always wondered about that. Uh, I always knew that that was a risk. So I was, I always try to be extremely cautious in trading spreads for that reason. It, yeah. And again, as long as you still have the other leg to it, your, your risk is still defined. Like that's the important thing to remember, right? So even mm -hmm. if now they're short 1,600 shares of SPY, they still have 20 long calls against right. it that right. still hedges the same exact risk. So they're still safe. But, uh, well, yeah, because the, the platform shouldn't let you even place that trade if you don't have the margin to take ex, uh, assignment, right? Well, sort of. It's because the broker views the vertical spread as a as defined strategy. A, because, yeah. yeah, so what would happen in that scenario is their buying power would essentially be fucked. It would have nothing. Right. Because all of it's going to be tied up in these short shares, depending on if it's a small account or not. But again, it doesn't mean that your portfolio is now open to like massive risk. You right. still have the hedge in place from the long call. So the main thing there is just don't freak out because I've seen people make really bad decisions because they didn't know that this could happen. And that is really where the risk starts to enter the conversation. Well, didn't Robin have somebody commit suicide because he opened up his app and saw something like that? Yes, that guy was in the documentary. Yeah. Oh, he was in the documentary? Well, there was many, it oh. was discussed. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you manage yeah. that? <laughs> fucking insane. But, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I understand the I risks, guess, right? Yeah. Like, literally, I can't think of a better way to summarize it than exactly that. They're, they're, if you don't understand the products, stuff can happen that takes you off guard that doesn't even need to. Yeah. But, yeah. That is all I got for you. Uh, what's the homework for this week? So the homework for this week is super simple. I want you guys to continue developing your primary options trading strategy. And the next session we're going to do together is on options analysis. So what we're going to do for that session, there's really no pre-work that you have to do other than optional stuff. Get it? <laughs> but what we, what we can do is I'm going to pull up a list of random products and we're going to do two different things. The first one is I'm going to say to you, I'm bullish, make me a trade. And then in another scenario, I'm going to say, I don't have an opinion here, make me a trade. So what I'm hoping to do is to get us in the habit of looking at products and being able to make trade assumptions. Whether we trade it or not doesn't matter, but we're conditioning our brain not to be overly fatigued looking at things and making trade decisions. Analysis paralysis happens to far too many traders because each trade then starts to be built into this giant prospect and every detail has got to be perfect. And it's a giant waste of time. The Pareto principle definitely applies in some capacity here. So I want us to be able to look at trades, whether or not we take it, but to be able to make good option structures around different products. So that'll be the next session. Work on the primary option trading strategy. And then it'll be a live workshop together where we're going to look through a handful of examples of products and create trades. I love this. I cannot wait for this one. Uh, planning on two weeks from now, we'll reconvene. Is that the idea? Uh, probably three. 
because okay. you're I, going to Iceland. I, you've got your trip. I will be in Iceland for a bit. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this thing up then. That's going to do it for today. Thank you, everybody who stuck around to the end. Uh, especially say thanks to Blaine for joining me in the classroom and Eric for uh, venturing into the abyss that is Reddit for the day's case studies. Uh, very brave of you to venture there alone. We'll be back soon with the next installment. But until then, if you got something useful out of the series, tell your friends, hit that like button. If not, hit that thumbs down twice and take care. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.